Good morning. Happy New Year. So how many of you made some kind of a vow or resolution for the new year? Not so many. Not so many. How many of you seven days in are still doing okay on your vow or resolution? How about the same number? It's pretty good. Right. I like I like New Year's. I like the idea of making resolutions. And a number of people <clears throat> have mentioned to me that they really missed coming here while we were closed. And this year we were closed for the holiday holiday break over uh, two Sundays, which made it seem like quite a long time. And I'm sorry we have to close, but it's really kind of important to give our volunteers a break this time of year. So it's good to be back together. So many familiar faces. <laughs> um, so someone pointed out to me recently uh, that we don't do a lot of talks here at MZMC about intimate and romantic relationships. And I thought about that and I thought sometimes we do, but really, yeah, that's right. We don't do that so much. And, and I don't, uh, I don't so much. And I wondered uh, why that is, because I do talks about embodying our Zen practice in all kinds of different areas. You know, I'll talk about Zen practice at work or Zen practice when raising children or even Zen practice while driving. But I don't talk so much about the very thing that is often the most central thing in our lives, which is uh, what does our Zen practice have to say about the closest relationships that we have? And I think one reason I've avoided it is that it's a little difficult and it's a little scary. Uh, I'm kind of private about these things. North Dakotans tend to be that way. Uh, and I'm a little afraid of saying something embarrassing. And also our closest relationships, our romantic relationships, um, tend to involve uh, gender roles, gender attitudes. Maybe I'm a little afraid of saying something inadvertently that would be offensive or hurtful, or I might reveal some hidden bias that I have. So it would be safer just to avoid the issue. But of course, a Zen teacher should never take the safe route. So another thing uh, is that I haven't always done perfectly in my own life, and I have a bit of regret about that. Uh, when I was younger, much younger than I am now, um, I'll just admit this, I was so emotionally needy that uh, I couldn't help but put my own interests first. And uh, this could be uh, harmful. And I'm really not like that now. I've changed through years of experience, through years of you know getting it wrong and then finally getting it right. Uh, and also because of my uh, practice, but still it can be hard to talk about things that kind of bring up that uh, sense of uh, regret. And the person who brought this up to me about how we don't address this topic enough, and by the way, I don't know all that who that person is because it was a response to uh, an anonymous 
uh, survey. Um, that person acknowledged that this is a tricky topic uh, to teach about, but they also said that there's a precept about not misusing sexuality. Um, and, you know, why do we not teach about that precept very much? And then they made a comment which really got my attention, which was about monks in the old days having rules about never touching women. And they asked, are we still afraid of that? And I thought, wow, that's, that's a pretty good question. <laughs> that had not occurred to me. Well, maybe, maybe we're afraid of that, maybe not, I don't know. But if there's an unwillingness to go there, if there's an unwillingness to talk about these things, that could sort of tap into that history and reinforce it. Like, oh, we just, you know, we don't have anything to do with sex, you know. Um, <clears throat> and it's certainly there in the history. You know, in the early days of Buddhism, there was a very strict separation between men and women among monks. And sometimes male monks were never allowed to touch women. And I think that's probably true for some monks even today in other uh, traditions. So that strict separation occurred in India and it occurred in China. Uh, and in Japan, as far as I know, I think most of the monasteries are still uh, segregated by gender. Uh, but in Japan, uh, priests can be married. And I think that's good. I would not want to be ordained in a tradition where I had to be uh, celibate. And um, when priests can be married or can have other intimate relationships, they're going to be better able to relate to people in their community. But there was, I think, this early attitude that romantic love and sexual desire were things to be suppressed. And I think that's consistent with some other attitudes in early uh, Buddhism, uh, pre-Mahayana Buddhism, which is that we must conquer our natural urges, not work with, but conquer and destroy or subdue our natural urges. And um, this is evident in a lot of writings. It's evident in the Dhammapada, which I'm sure some many of you are familiar with. It's a short book of sayings of the Buddha. And we studied it uh, a few years ago, quite a few years ago, I think, in a, I think it was a practice period. And I can remember a lot of people being kind of frustrated with the Dhammapada because it was kind of, it seemed kind of militant in that way, kind of this strict separation between good and bad. And uh, it seemed a little inconsistent with other parts of the Buddha's teachings. So um, just to give you an example, um, uh, one section of the Dhammapada, I'm just going to pull out a few things from it. Uh, as a fish hooked and left on the sand thrashes about in agony, the mind being trained in meditation trembles all over, desperate to escape the hand of Mara, the tempter. I actually really like that image of the fish thrashing about in agony. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a nice image of, of suffering. But it's interesting here that Mara the tempter is, you know, personified, sort of this personified evil. And Mara is this sort of devil-like figure in Buddhism. Hard it is to train the mind 
which goes where it likes and does what it wants. But a trained mind brings health and happiness. Yes, I think that's true. Those who can direct thoughts, which are unsubstantial and wander so aimlessly, are freed from the bonds of Mara. Remember, this body is like a fragile clay pot. Make your mind a fortress and conquer Mara with the weapon of wisdom. Guard your conquest always. And that is the particular line that I remember most vividly from that practice period, uh, because it seemed to go so much against this kind of gentle practice that I had developed. And it seemed to just not work for me to try to make my mind a, a fortress. So with Mahayana Buddhism, and I'm speaking in great generalities here because there are great variations, things uh, softened quite a lot. And we see a lot less about conquering and subduing and forcing things. And that includes the desires of the body, but also the desires of the mind, the basic desire of our mind to attach to things. We see less about subduing and destroying that urge and more about kind of working with it and, and giving your mind, giving your, giving your horse a large pasture. And it's true uh, that meditation is about training the mind. But in our meditation, in our teaching here, we tend to be not quite so uh, forceful. It's true that uh, mental discipline and being a little forceful is part of our practice, especially in the beginning. We really need that because our minds are so noisy. We need to really make an effort, bring some discipline there to quiet things down. So we follow our breath we may be a little uh, tough on ourselves. But as I've said many times, ultimately that attitude of being uh, militantly disciplined uh, is not enough. And it can even be counterproductive, I think. It just reinforces the sense of the self uh, when we do that. Uh, the sense that we have a self that is separate from everything else, and that the self needs to restrain the self, or the self needs to eliminate the self. That just can't happen. That just can't possibly work. The self can't eliminate the self. The self just has to stop talking. Something else has mm -hmm. to be invited in that's going to talk louder than the self. So our approach to meditation uh, can be much gentler. And I find as I continue to practice more and more that you just can't force it. And I still occasionally do that. You know, I still get a little frustrated with myself and I say, Ted, you've got to, you know, be disciplined, just really buckle down and get tough with these thoughts. And every time I do that, it just doesn't work. Um, I may get to kind of a quieter place, but it seems to take a toll also. It seems to take a toll also. I mean, the best way to be is to just let it come and not hurry. Just let it come, don't hurry, don't force it. So 
all I can really do is ask, what is here now again and again and again in a way that doesn't involve the analytical mind and doesn't involve the self always going forward and trying to do things. The self has to step back. So if a thought comes in, I can't try to excise that thought. I mean, you can't do that retroactively, right? The thought is here. You let that thought become your whole world, but not in a thinking way. You do that with your body. I know that sounds pretty vague, but you accept that thought with your whole body. You can feel it. You can feel what your mind is doing and the impact of that without actually indulging the meaning of the thought. So you accept it. You accept where you are with your whole body and then it's gone. It's just this. It's gone. So in Mahayana Buddhism, or at least the way we teach it here, we don't build a fortress. We don't accept the idea of separation that the fortress entails. We don't build a fortress against thought or desire or sex or romantic love or deep friendship. We need to be gentler than that. We have to acknowledge the reality of our lives. So we practice with these things, not against them. And so we bring Zen practice to romantic love, and that is not easy. And in my experience, practicing Zen in the midst of romantic love or with anyone that you're really close to, like your siblings or your children, is probably about the hardest practice of all. Because our love for them is so intimately bound up with our own needs. It's almost impossible for us to separate our interests from the interests of the loved one. And it seems like the very definition of romantic love is that it's about two people of whatever gender and whatever situation, sharing and satisfying mutual need. That's what it's about. I mean, I suppose ideally, romantic love would be 100% about just giving to your partner, being nothing but generous, indulging your own needs, not at all. But come on, that's not really the nature of it. It's a mutual thing. Romantic love is about desire and satisfaction of desire. And if you've heard that phrase before, that's from the Four Noble Truths. And it sounds like, whoa, romantic love must be just totally outside of the Four Noble Truths, right? So the Four Noble Truths, the most basic teaching of the Buddha, that there is suffering, there is dukkha, suffering is caused by desire, we can end our suffering by ending our desire. And there is an eightfold path for doing this. So what happens when we apply the Four Noble Truths to romantic love? Well, first, there is suffering. Yes, yes, there is. Love hurts. 
I have suffered. I have thought at times that I was probably just going to die. I have thought that because of a breakup, my world was destroyed and it would never be the same again because love ended. And in the midst of love, when I was younger, I hurt so bad because my needs were so strong. And so my partner suffered too. Second, suffering is caused by desire. Well, that is true. It's our need and the disappointment of not having that need met that causes suffering. And if we vowed never to love, well, then we wouldn't suffer from love. But of course, then we'd be very lonely. So you can't avoid the hurt. It's going to happen one year or the other. But third, you can end suffering by ending your desire. Okay, here's where I might depart from the Four Noble Truths a little bit, if I may say something so radical. Because I personally am not going to end my suffering by ending my desire. I'm not going to vow never to love. I'm not going to become celibate. I'm not going to get a divorce. I'm not going to try to suppress that part of myself that has brought so much beauty and love and pain and joy and life into my life. I mean, the third noble truth does apply here and applies very well to an extent because we can mitigate our desire in order to do less harm to ourselves and others. We can have a sense of ethics and a strong self-awareness and cultivate compassion and just try to be a good partner and not be carried away by our own needs. <clears throat> so the third noble truth applies pretty well, but it doesn't apply completely, at least not to most people leading a lay life, because we can't take it so far that we're going to say that we're going to try to end our desire. I mean, some folks may do that, and that's fine. Some monks may do that. Some lay people may take that approach, but most people will not. So. I don't want to say that romantic love is wrong. I want to fall into it. I want to fall into it all the way. And I don't want to feel badly about doing that. Um, and I think this fits Dogen's view, you know, the view of uh, Soto Zen, which I've mentioned so many times. Um, <clears throat> we can get stuck in the world of form, believing that everything is real, that all things have a separate existence. We can be so much in love that we're just sort of blind to interconnections and uh, forget all needs except our own. We can also get stuck in the world of emptiness, believing that none of this is real and none of it matters. So we don't need to engage in it or we don't need to worry about it or we can do whatever we want. Or we can go on to the third step which is being present in this vivid, confusing, juicy life where we go beyond distinctions of form and emptiness. And that's where we practice. We, we play in this world. Um, C.W. Huntington Jr. in his book, The Emptiness of Emptiness, isn't that a great title? He says, <clears throat> What is false appearance for the average person bound to reified concepts is mere appearance for the bodhisattva. He writes, 
He writes very densely, so I'll read that again. <laughs> what is false appearance for the average person bound to reified concepts is mere appearance for the bodhisattva. So false appearance, if, if we're, we're carried away by all of this and we don't see interdependence, it's a big problem. But if we see all of this and interact in it with some awareness and a sense of interdependence and are really vividly present in this messy world, then that's the bodhisattva path. So we play in this world of attachments. We play responsibly. <laughs> um, we don't destroy our attachments. And we don't indulge them either, but we learn to see things clearly through that lens of interdependence. And we take care of the things around us, which of course includes the people we love the most. <clears throat> so there's a difference between being lost in the world of form and just running amok and being present in the world of form with an understanding of formlessness, which is another way of saying interconnections. And if we're truly aware of interconnections, a very strong sense of ethics arises. And we have to have a strong sense of ethics. And that's why not misusing sexuality is one of the first five precepts, because it's so very easy to do harm in the realm of desire. And I'm not actually really going to talk about sex this morning. I'm going to leave that to someone braver and younger, perhaps. Um, but I will give you a quick summary of what I always said each year to the uh, teen Buddhist group in my annual sex talk, uh, which was, sex is great, but it makes people crazy. So you have to be really careful. <laughs> so, yeah, because it's really easy to do, do harm. And um, those of you who have come to Zen practice when you're really quite young, I think, are really fortunate to have this, uh, this practice. And I think you're also fortunate because there's so much more understanding now about how to avoid doing harm in relationships. And young people seem to take that very seriously. I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, ethics is deeply ingrained in Buddhism. It's absolutely essential to what we do. Uh, if you think you're enlightened and that puts you beyond ethics, you are simply wrong. Awakening should make you more ethical, and your ethics should arise from within you, not from uh, a set of rules imposed from the exterior, although we do need those rules as well. Um, and I can't talk about ethics and intimate relationships without acknowledging the harm uh, that occurs in our patriarchal society. And some folks are uncomfortable with this word patriarchal, uh, but I think it's a pretty good word because men dominating women is really something that is built into the fabric of our society. And to be really ethical, we have to take that in, we men anyway, and see how that's true and see what our place is in it. 
And I'm not trying to shame anyone here. I'm just uh, saying what's true. Uh, I didn't make the patriarchal society, but I do benefit from it. And to be ethical, I need to examine that fact. I need to determine what it means. Uh, and there's a responsibility to look at uh, Zen Buddhism in this country and our own uh, Sangha. And um, there are a number of women and gender non-conforming people who are leaders in our Sangha, but there's a little bit of an imbalance too in our, our teaching group. Our teaching group is more heavily male and sometimes in participation too and at certain, certain events. And that isn't something that's unique to MZMC. It happens at many uh, Zen centers. So that's something we continue to look at. And we actually have a couple of events coming up that I'm going to put in a plug for. Uh, one is a council process, uh, which uh, is going to be, we do these regularly. The next one is going to be about promoting gender equity and inclusiveness. And that'll be led by Deb Milkey, Margaret Pfeffer, and myself. And that's on a Monday night, January 29th. So that's for everybody to come together and discuss this. And you're most welcome to come. And that is in-person only because of the nature of council process. And then we're going to have another gathering called Men Gathering for Gender Equity. This will be the first time we've done this. And it is designed for men who want to enact the Bodhisattva vows by working for a world where there is equal inclusion and equity for people of all genders. So that will be led by Ben Connolly, and that is will be on February 26th, which is also a Monday night. So I am really looking forward to those things. And before I finish, this is not going to be a really long talk. I just like to talk a little bit about how we can be respectful and ethical in our romantic relationships. I may not be the best person to talk about this. I grew up in an era when attitudes about this were pretty bad. Uh, it's been a long time since I've dated. Um, on the other hand, I've got a lot of experience and I've made lots of mistakes to learn from. Uh, and I've ended up in a place which is, I think, really, really great, better than I could have uh, imagined. And part of that is because of my partner. Well, probably about all of that, uh, but she's very generous and kind. Uh, part of it is my experience and part of it is my practice. It has really helped. I'm much more likely to be attentive to my partner's needs when I've been engaged in more formal practice. So one thing is I have learned, you have to be so careful about what you say. This is like right speech squared or maybe cube because we may be likely to just say something, more likely to say something quick and hurtful with our partner than we are with anyone else. That's because we're so familiar and our needs are so tied up with them and we let our guard down so much when we're intimate and it just pops out. We'd never say that to, you know, somebody here at Zen somewhere, but but we do that. So, you know, and it's easy to get kind of riled up because of need and desire. So be ever so careful. Don't say things that you later want to unsay. Listen to that little voice 
Sometimes there's that little voice. It's so subtle. It's like, you sure you want to say that? And you hear it and pay attention to it because you can never, ever unsay something hurtful. It's out there for all time. So if you see that you're getting to that point where you might indulge in some hurtful talk, try to just stop. I'm not saying don't be direct. I'm not saying don't be plain. Directness is needed too, but don't be direct in an unnecessarily hurtful way. <clears throat> Another thing is really give your partner a lot of room. Trust them. The more room you give them, the better it'll be. As a person who is engaged in kind of clinging behavior, I've really seen the wisdom of that. Also in a relationship, you have to be very careful and very deliberate about how much of yourself to give up. And this is kind of hard to, to talk about, I think, but an understanding of interdependence says to really be with somebody, you really have to give up a lot. You really have to welcome a lot in. You really have to compromise. Uh, it's pretty hard to maintain all of your own habits and preferences and still share your life. And for me, because I'm in a deep relationship, I feel like I give up about half of myself, and I am happy to do that. <laughs> I am happy to let about half of myself be defined by another person. Um, but that's, that's a lot, that's a lot. And of course you have to be careful and not give up too much of yourself. And you have to have the wisdom to surmise how much of yourself it is healthy to give up. So you hold something back. You don't stand for mistreatment or abuse. If that's happening, please get some support, talk to someone and address that issue. So it's good to ask, am I giving up too much? Am I giving up too little? And of course, gender is relevant uh, to this question too. So close, loving relationships are great. Some people are in them. Some people aren't. Some are in them or not in them by choice. Some wish things were different. Uh, some folks conclude that being in a close relationship is not for them or maybe not for them in a certain part of their life. And that's just fine. Um, for those who haven't made that conclusion, I kind of urge people, uh, if it comes up, to kind of, you know, get out there and give it a try. <laughs> um, I, I met uh, Kathy online, actually, on, uh, it was on eHarmony. This was 17 years ago, and eHarmony may have changed since then, <laughs> but it was really good. It really worked. She was like the first person to pop up because we were like so compatible. Give you a test, you know, kind of to see what you're like. And then they have this sort of gradual way that you contact each other. And it really worked. It was, it was great. And so I've encouraged other people to do that. I know of one person who took my advice and, and found a partner that way. So it's not easy to get out there. It's scary. Uh, you may get rejected. You're very likely to get rejected. You have to kind of steal yourself, you know. Maybe you steal yourself or maybe you find some lightness and, and humor, and that can help you a lot. But there are so many 
wonderful people out there. And um, don't settle for someone who treats you badly. You are Buddha. You are Buddha. Find someone who sees the Buddha in you. Find someone in whom you can see the Buddha. So let me summarize. The Zen view of romantic love, at least as I see it, is do not try to destroy desire, accept it and work with it. Use your practice to develop self-awareness and compassion and to cultivate a strong sense of ethics in order not to do harm. So loving relationships are not outside of our practice, they are our practice. And now I'd like to hear from some of you, if anyone would like to speak. Either someone online, if you're online, I guess probably the best thing is to raise your hand. And in the room, well, same thing, Janine. Thank you so much for broaching this topic, Ted. I'm really grateful that you gave this talk today. Um, and I am looking forward to hearing more on this topic in the future, because I feel like there's there's just a lot to explore here. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that comes to mind, and I, I don't know if you feel like you can briefly address this today, but maybe in some future talk too, or if you feel like addressing it just now. Um, for a lot of people, for me anyway, and I think for a lot of other people at Zen Center, we may have partners who do not practice Zen or who do not meditate. I'm, I feel very fortunate that my partner is pretty simpatico with this practice and supports me and, you know, we have little Zen jokes together uh, a mm -hmm. lot and that's how we meet. But I, I wonder as uh, in American Zen, you know, we're generally leading a lay life. A lot of people have this experience where they're in a romantic relationship with someone who does not share their practice. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about how that can be fruitful or challenging or how you have managed that in your life. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jenny. I'll try to restate that for the people online. Could you hear all of that online? Raise your hand if you heard it really pretty well. Well, it sounds like everybody heard that. Okay, so the question, um, after saying um, that it would be good to address this question more around here, uh, the question was about uh, uh, those of us who have partners who don't practice Zen. And that that's a... Yeah, that's a pretty good question because, um, yeah, if you have a partner who practices Zen and you practice Zen together, that is that is just wonderful. But that's not the situation for, I would say, the majority of people. It's not my situation. Uh, my wife uh, does not practice Zen. Um, she She's very supportive of, of what I do, um, which is wonderful, and, and I'm lucky in that respect. Um, I guess I try to really uh, respect those uh, those boundaries and to meet my partner where she is. She's really interested in what I do here. She's interested in many ways, but not quite as much in the spiritual aspect. She's kind of interested in sort of the career aspect of what it's like to be a guiding teacher. So we talk about that, you know. And, and that's really, that's really great. And she comes here sometimes and she loves the folks here. And she always tells people what a wonderful uh, group we are. 
But I kind of respect those boundaries and, you know, don't try to impose uh, any sort of topics that are not really welcome. Um, and how to practice, I think respecting boundaries is one thing. Um, and also, I think if you can introduce your partner to Zen Center in a way that kind of meets them where they are, because what we do here is pretty unusual, pretty weird. Uh, and so if you can find a way to kind of reduce the weirdness of it, you know, maybe bring, bring them by to a friendly event, like one of our family events, you know, uh, to something like that, or just bring them by to show, to show them around and, um, share with them the many aspects of our community, because it's not just about talking about Zen. We're just like any, any church in the Twin Cities, you know, we're a community. We've got all of this stuff going on. Uh, we can share those things as well. And so, yeah, that's what I can think of. Perhaps other people have ideas on this as well. So thank you, Jenny. Anyone else? Yes, Leslie. Thank you for your talk. Really enjoyed it, Ted. Um, as someone who has not been in a romantic relationship for a while, the last long-term uh, romantic relationship I was in, I was very active in my spiritual life, not in Zen, but meditating, and I was doing the work of Byron Katie, and just a lot of internal work. Um, and he was a great, fertile opportunity to do all that internal work. And um, I found it to be really valuable that way, even though there were a lot of things because he wasn't involved in a spiritual path, conscious one anyway. Um, there were a lot of opportunities for me to look at myself on my expectations and my reactions and all of that. So I find romantic relationships uh, hold a really special place for growth in some of those areas and to do shadow work, to see the shadow of yourself coming out when they don't meet your expectations. But right now, where I'm seeing a lot of that is with my kids. You talked a little bit about that. And um, I'm really involved in their lives and in my grandchildren's lives, which is wonderful. But it is, again, it's an opportunity to see where I'm not being Zen or not, you know, I'm, I'm engaging in my desires rather than what is. And um, when you started the talk, it reminded me of Ram Dawson's thing, the saying that. If you think you're enlightened, just go spend a weekend with your family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you spend everything with your family. It's, uh, it's quite an interesting experience. So, anyway, I think all of us have probably, many of us have had uh, weekends with our family over the last month or time with our family. Um, and I did. It was, it was good to see where I could practice. And, and, you know, I think it's important, too, to look at, for me, it's important to look at where, how I've improved in some of those areas where I'm not reacting and I'm rather sitting and listening and then acting from that place. So, again, thank you for your talk. I think it's a great, a great opportunity to look at our practice. Yeah, thank, thank you. That was a, <clears throat> that was a great comment, and I, I can't repeat it all. Uh, for the online audience. But one thing you mentioned was uh, doing internal work about relationships and also doing internal work like not in a from a Zen point of view, right? And you mentioned one particular 
Yeah, Byron Katie. Byron Katie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of internal work in relationships. Yeah, right. Right. And you talk about practicing with family. Right. Right. Um, Zen practice is hardest with the people we love the most. And that is most dramatic when you go home for Thanksgiving. Right. Christmas. Not for everyone, but for a lot of people, you know, like you have to kind of steal yourself before you do that because it gets complicated. All right. Thank you. Uh, yes. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so I'm going to put another plug for continued um, revisitation of this topic. Um, when you first introduced um, your topic that like, you were going to talk about, my mind immediately had like specific things. Oh, you might talk about this. You might talk about this. And I, I sat and listened, and you came from such a different approach of, <laughs> that I would ever think of for the topic. Um, it just makes me realize that I think having different speakers talk about the same um, topic would be very helpful. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Having different <clears throat> speakers talk about this could, could be helpful because... Yeah, maybe not everyone is going to start with the Dhammapada and Florida. They might move a few steps closer to our lived reality. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Kat. Yes, Raymond and then Katie. Just a comment when you were talking about patriarchal uh, society. Uh, there was something that happened at work. Uh, one of the young uh, Young employees got married and he took his wife's name. And that was such a big deal. It was such a topic of common of conversation that I really didn't get. Um, but you brought that up. And, uh, I just wanted to mention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> right, right. So the comment had to do with a, a person who uh, taking uh, his wife's name upon uh, getting married. Yeah, it's funny that would be such a big deal. Katie. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, so the, the, the desire from the other end of the desire not to suffer. You know, like what does suffering mean when we're suffering so much when people are physically suffering so much? And it occurred to me that, that like you're saying, we can't eliminate desire. You, you desire to live. You desire to not be physically injured or emotionally injured. Um, and that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And desiring to have love and connection is not a bad thing. So I've, I've been thinking a lot about that, how we, we don't want to eliminate desire. We need to, as, as you said, be, work with it, be aware of it, and understand it. Mm -hmm. And find out ways we can suffer less by looking at aspects, different aspects of it. So anyway, it's right. a, a much larger conversation to have, but but I've been thinking a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We can we can use our practice to mitigate desire. The idea that we would eliminate all desires, like even the desire to be alive, say you know, attachment to our own lives. It's just uh, there's maybe maybe a deep deep level where there's some truth in that, but to really you know focus on that and and 
choose that as an ideal of our practice that we're going to have no desire whatsoever. It's just, it's just going to lead to disappointment, unhappiness, and more suffering. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yes, Cato. There's some versions of the Bodhisattva vows that we say at the end every Sunday that says desires are inexhaustible. <laughs> Not just delusions, but desires are inexhaustible. <laughs> and that we're going to vow to put it into them. We're going to vow to extinguish them. I don't want people to be surprised when they hear this. <laughs> what? <laughs> we were just talking about that. I got a third in What? I don't get it. Um, yeah, don't be surprised and put it all into this context that you've been weaving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we, we chant here, we vow to extinguish desires. And Cato was saying, I don't want people to be surprised when they hear that. And basically, yeah, there is this larger context. I mean, the things I've talked about that we should keep in mind, but uh, we should remember that the Bodhisattva vows are impossible. And um, uh, take a, a realistic attitude toward them. Thanks, Cato. Uh, yes. In this notion of design, I'm thinking about the times where, you know, my partner's suffering. And the thing I most desire is to take that away. But my partner doesn't want that. Or there might be a time where my partner does want that. So this idea of having wisdom on the times where there is equal desire or help, and the times that there's not. And that my job is to manage that desire to help in a way that ultimately serves me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that desire to help to take your partner's suffering away. Um, mm-hmm. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. We, we, we talk about that sometimes in connection with uh, bodhisattva work to... Um, mm -hmm. Be careful about that and always closely examine our own uh, motivations. Is our desire to take their suffering away something that's really coming more? Is it, is it our own desire? Is it something that helps us? And so sometimes we can, because we suffer when we see them suffering, we just want to take it away so badly when sometimes you can't or sometimes they're not ready for your help, et cetera. So that, that is a tricky area. Thanks for mentioning that. Yes. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much. I'm so happy you talked about the subject. It's one of the reasons that I've always held off um, devoting myself to the practice, I'll be honest with you. It took me a very long time. Hmm. I've been coming here for three months. And I think I got to the point because, you know, um, I've always been interested in it. And um, but because I'm queer and I'm transgender. And I didn't come out until I was like 38. You know, it's like the idea of having to eliminate certain things about myself is very threatening. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like Crow Hall there, and I've been this one for, you know, 16, 17 years. Really not that important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My gender isn't important. 
So it's a very non-dualistic thing. Kind of don't think about it. It's like the color of my hair. Yeah. And my partner, you know, I've been with him for 15 years. It just is. Yeah. Where the suffering comes in is, you know, we're in, we're lying in bed last night on a new house. We just moved here. Um, and our neighbor, he's about our age and he's all alone. And my partner was like, you know, it's really sad to be all alone. And I was like, well, maybe he's happy being all alone. And he was like, said, well, I don't like to be all alone. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't like to be all alone either. <laughs> and it's like, you know, basically I said, but eventually one of us will be alone. And I, that's the hard part about intimacy. You know, it's opening ourselves to the fact that eventually one of you will be alone. Yeah. 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 Well, eventually, yeah, I'll just I'll just repeat that. It's it's a very hard thing about having a partner, knowing eventually that um, uh, one of you will be alone, and that's part of the great all oh, the great risk. You know, when we fall in love, it just you you open yourself up so much, but. I don't know. That's life. That's what we do, isn't it? Better to have loved and lost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think... Yeah, well, I'll, I'll stop with that. So, okay, Leo and... <laughs> one person online. And then, okay, and then one person online, and then we'll probably have to wrap it up. Leo. I think sometimes religion gets in the way of the continuity of the species. The Shakers. The Shakers came over here from Europe, late 1700s. They were not, you know, the Quakers. And at one time in this country, there was probably 20 to 30,000 Shakers living in these communities. And very non-patriarchal society, egalitarian. Men and women both have equal pull in this society, but no sex. Uh -huh. Everyone had to take a vow of celibacy. Well, I know one thing: if you want for the shakers to continue, you have to start having a little shaker, right? <laughs> They were, they were adopting children into the society to continue. But you know, these kids get to a certain age and they see that well, there's not going to be any sex. They make good furniture. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. You're suggesting we should procreate? Welcome to the slaughterhouse by Kurt Ronigan. Uh, yeah. Uh, Billy the poet didn't want to take it. The monkey, 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 the monkey
required people to take drugs which take away the healing, mm -hmm. the, the central healing of sex. But you oh. have to have sex to It's all yes. good. All right. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, what's your name again? Dan. Dan. I was uh, really intrigued by the relation of desire and delusion that you were talking about, Kato. Um, because as you were, as you raised the, uh, the point of his niece with a contradiction in that, that these romantic relationships sustain us and that we vow to extinguish desire and that's supposed to be at odds with the, you know, the, the continuation of this thing that, you know, buoys us in, in life. But, uh, I was reading it even as we were talking as extinguishing the desire or my partner to be anything that she is not or cannot be. And that really maps really well on to delusion. Like <laughs> really trying to extinguish is not desire. It's the desire for her to be anything she's not. And that really is just delusion, extinguishing the delusion that she is anyone other than who she is. Right. Very good. Thank you, Dan. And we have one person online. Paul. Thank you, Ted. You know, I often find that, you know, I'm so emotionally detached from others that, you know, I don't really find myself feeling like, you know, feelings of love very much anymore. I mean, oftentimes I just feel like it's just more of a fantasy that people indulge in and I myself am a little bit guilty of it, but I think, you know, partially it, it stems in one way from my autism, but also, you know, from a crush that I had on somebody in high school that ended pretty badly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So emotional detachment stemming from autism. And I think that is just a very good comment to remind us that there are uh, all kinds of approaches in this area. We shouldn't make any assumptions about um, how people are. And I know my talk, you know, it's, it's, it comes from my experience. So it's pretty heavily weighted toward my experience, but it's certainly not the only way uh, to see things. And there is an incredible, beautiful, a variety in the world of approaches to romantic love and certainly no one that's right or better than the others. So, okay, we better stop. So we have time for uh, some announcements here. Thank you, everyone.